it's after 7.30 where I am, so we will uh, commence uh, the meeting. This is the 802nd regular meeting of the Civil War Roundtable. Uh, tonight, we have Michael Hardy on General Lee's Immortals, the Lane Branch Brigade. Before uh, starting, I do have an, uh, an item of business. I uh, hope Michael will be patient. I need to announce to the members uh, here uh, our slate of uh, officers for the 2021-2022 year uh, officers and trustees. Now, I will announce them. The election will be next month, June, and uh, the slate will be printed in the June newsletter. But here is the slate of officers. Uh, for President John Sebastian, first Vice President Kurt Carlson, second Vice President Kurt uh, Tomasco, please no one faint. Uh, uh, Treasurer uh, Dennis Doyle, Assistant Treasurer Karen Weber, Secretary Dan Modes, Assistant Secretary Jim Aducci. Uh, the trustees are uh, for term ending 2022, Randy Doler, Richard Fry, Dave Henke, and David Zucker. For term ending 2023, uh, we have uh, Gary Fine, Rick Branham, Tom Murray, and Ginny Procunier. Again, the, the slate will be uh, printed in the June newsletter, and we will hold the election at the June meeting. So with that item of business, uh, we will now turn to uh, this uh, this month's uh, uh, guest, uh, Mark Michael Hardy. Mark, yes. Can I make my announcement though? Oh, oh, John. Yeah. John Sebastian <laughs> will be talking about the tour upcoming to Fredericksburg in August. Thank you. So right. yes, we will be taking the tour uh, August 18th to the 22nd. Um. The information is all on the website, Chicago Civil War Roundtable website. You can find both the registration form there and the meal choice form. Uh, if you want to just email that back to me, um, which is fine, or mail it to me with your deposit. But if you at least send me that, then I can put you down, uh, put a spot for you. So please um, send that to me. But yes, we're going to Fredericksburg and to Chancellorsville. Um, and we will also be seeing, yeah, um, Hartford Church and Kelly's Ford. So we'll be doing doing several things in that area. We will have Greg Mertz, uh, who was historian at Fredericksburg Spotsylvania National Military Park. He actually just retired um, two weeks ago, <laughs> but he will be with us as well as Frank O'Reilly, who is currently still historian at uh, Fredericksburg, Spotsylvania National Military Park. So we will have the two historians with us on the tour. Um, so I think we're still going to get a very good, excellent time uh, while we're there. So sounds sounds terrific. And I I, I have not yet uh, sent my check in, but uh, I will. And I'm going to be bringing a guest. I I, I trust we're Great. still in good good shape. We have a do we have some decent numbers signed up yet? The, the numbers are yes, the numbers are beginning to look better, but I've still got room for more. So please, okay. um, if you'd like to register, please let me know and I'll put you down. We still have spots left. So really like to get more people at this point to uh, to go with us. So very well, and we will have not all the details and I won't say too much, but we'll, we will probably have a uh, 
a short commemorative for Ed Bars uh, as well. This being the first tour of the roundtable that he will not be with us. Um, yeah. But yes, we and have some, there's still some things in the planning stage, but there'll also be sort of a commemorative for him as a part of this, this tour. Yeah, and for Michael's uh, information, Ed led our tours for 40 something years. I, I, I don't know exactly yeah. how many, uh, but it's maybe 45 years, uh, quite a man. But in any event, uh, turning to the main event, as they say. Uh, Mark, can I ask a question? Will there sure. be a transportation from the Washington airport? Yes. I'll have to, yes. Yeah, 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 that's, yeah, you can, you can find I all of have, that. Yes, I will have a bus running from the airport. Yeah, yes. you can find all of that on I'm, the website. Yes. Yeah. It's all on the website. Uh, turning to the main event. Uh, Michael Hardy on General Lee's Immortals. This is the story of the, uh, the Lane uh, Branch Brigade. For any of you who do not have Michael Hardy's book, I recommend it heartily. Uh, it is an excellent uh, study of a very uh, important uh, brigade in the Army of N Northern Virginia. All of us have heard of the Stonewall Brigade, of the Texas Brigade. Maybe all of us don't consider the, bran uh, the Branch Lane Brigade the way we should, but it figured in to uh, uh, with the exception of the first Manassas, all of the major engagements of the, or just about all of the major engagements of the Army of Northern Virginia, Second Manassas, Antietam, Gettysburg, Spotsylvania, and certainly uh, the uh, Chancellorsville, of course, uh, uh, until the uh, final uh, battles of Petersburg and Appomattox. Uh, to, to use the sports metaphor, the Lane Branch Brigade uh, knew the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. Uh, it figured in some of the uh, great moments and some of the lowest moments of the, uh, the, the in the history of the uh, of the Army of uh, Northern Virginia. Uh, for his part, uh, Michael Hardy has really written a, a, a great book. The way he integrates the stories of the campaigns, the battles, and then the stories of the Brigade leaders and the regimental uh, leaders, the 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 the, uh, the the line officers and the soldiers, so well that the reader is taken from one part of the story to the next so seamlessly. It 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 is really uh, an engaging narrative that that one doesn't often find with regimental and brigade type uh, studies. Michael is. Uh, it has written dozens, literally dozens of books, concentrating largely on uh, uh, the history of North Carolina in the Civil War. Uh, he's been honored uh, quite often by the Society of uh, uh, North Carolina Society of Historians, six-time winner of the Willie Parker Peace History Award. Uh, in 2010, the North, uh, North Carolina Society of Historians honored him with uh, the Historian of the Year. Uh, in 2009, he won uh, uh, the Jeff Davis Historical Gold Award from the uh, from the United Daughters of the Confederacy, and uh, Superior Achievement Award from the uh, Society of Confederate uh, Veterans. Uh, if you were, uh, and I do encourage you to uh, get his book, you would see uh, uh, high marks uh, in terms of uh, uh, reviews from uh, Eric Wittenberg and Tom Clemens, 
who uh, consider uh, his book uh, very well worth uh, reading. And if you would check your schedules, you will see that both those gentlemen, eminent historians in their own right, they will be speaking to our group in, in the fall. Uh, Savas Beatty, who published Michael's book, uh, gives us a quote from an officer who was with uh, the Lane, uh, a branch Lane Brigade, one Riddick Gatlin, who said, who has ever written a line to tell of the sacrifices, the suffering and the ending of these more than immortal men? Why has the history of that brigade not been written? Well, it has, and we're about to hear that. Michael Hardy. Good evening, and thank you so much for that introduction. Um, I'm looking back all the years that I've spent reading and, and researching. Uh, I, I think soldiers, both Confederate soldiers and Union soldiers, really wanted their story to be told. Uh, they that's why they wrote letters to their newspapers. That's why they wrote their reminiscences. That's why they wrote to. Um, what we call battles and leaders or, uh, you know, the, the National Tribune or, or other newspapers. And, and a lot of times they would ask that question uh, that Riddick Gatling Jr., the 33rd North Carolina wrote. They would ask that question, you know, why is nobody telling our story? Um, Gatling goes on to, in his quote, uh, and this was in 1887 that he's writing. He says, who has ever written a line to tell of the sacrifices, the suffering, and the ending of these more than immortal men? Who has ever told of the heroic death of General Branch at Sharpsburg? Where is to be found a history of his brigade, afterwards lanes, always glorious, always doing its duty? Why has the history of that brigade not been written? And, and stepping back 160 years from that question, not quite 100, but 160 years from the end of the war, why haven't more of these stories been told? Uh, even though we have tens of thousands of books about that time period, there are so many stories out there uh, that are largely forgotten. For the next few minutes, I'm going to tell you about the Branch Lane Brigade. <clears throat> they served in the Army of Northern Virginia from May of 1862 all the way through Appomattox. And um, as as Mark said, you know, they were there from the Seven Days Campaign all the way through every major battle that the, the, the Army fought in. They were considered the Second North Carolina Brigade. Uh, they were organized on May 30, March 30th, 1862, and they were made up of five North Carolina regiments, the 7th, the 18th, the 28th, the 33rd, and the 37th regiments. And appointed to command them was Brigadier General Lawrence O'Brien Branch. And can y'all see that? Somebody nod. Can you see that image on your screen? No, wait. How about uh, now? Yes. Okay, good. Brigadier General Lawrence O'Brien Branch. Uh, he was tapped to command the new brigade, and he was everything that military men hated. He was educated at Princeton University, what's now Princeton University College in New Jersey. He was admitted to the bar in 1841. He was a lawyer. He was a railroad president. And worse of all... Branch was a politician from a family of politicians. 
His uncle, John Branch, had served as governor of North Carolina and then as Andrew Jackson's secretary of the Navy. And then Branch goes on to serve as a United States congressman. There were many within the ranks of the brigade that resented Lawrence O'Brien Branch. A member of the 7th North Carolina wrote home that he thought his commander, Colonel Reuben Campbell, who was a West Pointer, should have, quote, been the first man in the state promoted. In his stead, miserable jackasses who scarcely know their right hand from their left, and certainly not our military valuation, were the first to receive military preferment. Truly, our state has been ungrateful to Colonel Reuben Campbell, the soldier wrote. The 1st of May, 1862, Branch's brigade was defeated by a federal corps. Branch's brigade was at Hanover Courthouse, just north of Richmond, trying to prevent the two wings of the Federal Army, one under McClellan and the other under McDowell, from uniting. Even though Branch's brigade was at nearly full strength, they were no match for almost an entire Federal Corps. At the same time Branch was fighting near Hanover Courthouse, the Confederate War Department created two new divisions. Branch's brigade was assigned to one of those the Light Division, commanded by A.P. Hill, and they would remain a part of the Light Division for the remainder of the war. In fact, it was in a note from A.P. Hill to Branch that Hill first used the term commander of the Light Division. In June of 1862, Branch's brigade began to earn what newspapers of the time period called their dangerous reputation. It seemed that whenever the Army of Northern Virginia was in a tight spot, Branch's brigade was called upon to come up and to fill that hole. This produced ghastly numbers of dead within the brigade. In the thick of the fighting at Gaines Mill on June 27th, against a seemingly impregnable federal position, the 7th Regiment surged ahead. The flag was being carried by Corporal Henry Fight. He was instantly shot down, one soldier wrote after the war, and then James A. Harris seized the flag next. He was likewise wounded. Then Colonel Campbell, Reuben Campbell that I just mentioned, himself seized the colors and advancing some 20 paces in front of his regiment, ordered them not to fire but to follow him. His men obeyed and rushed toward the Federals, Campbell leading with the flag of the 7th in one hand and his sword in the other. One soldier wrote, when within less than a stone's throw of the deadly guns, the heroic Colonel Campbell was pierced by an enemy bullet and instantly killed. After the war, one soldier recalled that as Campbell fell, the flag of the 7th, quote, covered his body as perfectly as it had been placed there by death and designing hands. Lieutenant Duncan Haywood seized the colors next, the staff of the flag having been shot in two, and likewise was killed, staining with his life's blood the battle flag. The rent and bloodied banner next passed to Corporal Lazarus Purney, who bore it aloft for the remainder of the battle. A few days later at Frazier's farm, the brigade was attempting to take a federal battery. With men dropping at every step, Branch's brigade pressed on toward the Federal line. About 100 yards from the Federal batteries, Colonel Lee of the 37th Regiment was exhorting his men with, on my brave boys, when he is struck by an artillery projectile. 
probably grape shot or canister. Adjutant William Nicholson rushed over to Lee and raising him up in his arms, asked him if he was hurt. And Lee replied, yes. Colonel, are you hurt much? The adjutant asked. And with that, Charles C. Lee died in his arms. The adjutant brought his body from the field with such of his personal effects had not been blown away. When told of Colonel Lee's death, his men wept as if they had lost a father. A private in the 37th Regiment said Lee was, quote, as gallant as an officer that ever trod the battlefield of Virginia. He was as brave as a lion and gentle as a lamb and thought it not inconsistent with his profession as a soldier to acknowledge Jesus Christ as the captain of his salvation. The brigade continued to push on, capturing two pieces of federal artillery. Branch's brigade continued to be in the thick of the fight. At Cedar Mountain, Branch led his men through portions of Stonewall's brigade. Portions of that brigade had broken during the fight, and were, some of them were fleeing toward the rear. Branch, who actually had dysentery at the time and had to be hauled into a wagon until right until the brigade formed, led his men forward and stabilized the Confederate line, all under the watchful eye of Jackson, who saluted the men with a raised hat as they pressed forward and helped secure a Confederate victory. At 2nd Manassas, the brigade protected the far Confederate left. They were actually in the second line. And the brigade was thrown into the battle as gaps formed in the front line. Branch would lead individual regiments at a time, and they even at one point began to run low on ammunition themselves and picked up rocks and hurled them at the Federals that were attacking. Then came the fight in the rain at Ox Hill or Chantilly and the capture of Harper's Ferry. The brigade was late in arriving at Sharpsburg, being a part of the force left behind at Harper's Ferry. There, along the banks of Antietam Creek, Branch could be seen. According to one officer, General Branch was, quote, pleased with the severe punishment his two regiments were inflicting upon the enemy. And his ammunition being short, he sent Lieutenant J.A. Bryan of his staff to order his regiments to cease fire. At that moment, Captain Lemons of General Archer's staff called General Branch's attention to a body of troops moving on the left. General Branch had just taken out his field glasses and was adjusting it to his eye when a rifle ball entered his right cheek and passed out behind his left ear. The officer wrote, without a murmur, without a word, seemingly without a pain, the noble spirit of that gallant officer in the heat of the battle had missed the victorious shouts of his beloved brigade passed from the earth to eternity. Branch's remains were sent to Raleigh to lie in state in the Capitol Rotunda before being laid to rest in the old Capitol Cemetery. A replacement was needed. They talked about Thomas L. Klingman, and, and they thought about James J. Pettigrew. But in the end, it was Colonel James H. Lane, commander of the 28th North Carolina, a member of Branch's brigade, that got the job. He was Branch's successor. Lane was born in Matthews County, Virginia, and educated at the Virginia Military Institute. Stonewall Jackson not quite Stonewall at the time, but, but Jackson was one of his instructors. 
He then went on to the University of Virginia to earn another degree. Lane taught in several schools prior to the war, and in 1860, he is teaching at the North Carolina Military Institute in Charlotte. Once North Carolina began mobilizing troops, Lane found himself as a major in the first North Carolina Volunteers and then as a lieutenant colonel. He was elected colonel the 28th in September 1861 and transferred. Lane had already been wounded during the Seven Days Campaign twice. Lane, in, in one of those woundings, and to show you what kind of soldier that he was, uh, in one of those battles, Lane actually was wounded in the head. Uh, and if you can't really see it from this picture of Lane, but in one image of Lane, he actually doesn't have any hair, even as a young man on the top of his head. Um, so as the story goes, uh, Lane is there fighting during one of the day, seven days battles, and he feels a bullet on his scalp. And he um, leans down to a sergeant major and says, Sergeant Major Lowe, am I wounded? And the sergeant major looks on the top of his head and says, just a little scorched, sir. Well, if you don't have any hair on the top of your head and a bullet comes that close to your scalp, you just came really close to eternity. That's kind of James H. Lane's personality. His first test as a brigade commander came at the Battle of Fredericksburg, where he was positioned on the Confederate right. Due to an oversight of both his division and corps commanders, Lane's right was unprotected, unsupported. And, and Lane brought that up to A.P. Hill. And, and A.P. Hill, um, there, were, there was a 600-yard gap between Lane's brigade and the next Confederate brigade. And, and Lane went to A.P. Hill and said, General, shouldn't we do something about this? And Hill says, oh, it's a swampy area full of woods. The Federals cannot go there. And supposedly somebody pointed this out to Stonewall Jackson as well. And Jackson more or less said the same thing. The Federals can't get through there. So where do the Federals go when they attack? right through that area where nobody is shooting at them. Lane's right, after running out of ammunition, gave way during the fight. And only the hard work of the brigades posted behind Lane helped save the day, help seal the Confederate line. And y'all mentioned going to Fredericksburg a few minutes ago, and everybody will want to go to the Confederate left and, and see Marie's Heights. But the real battle at Fredericksburg is on the Confederate right, where the Federals punched a hole in the line and could have won the battle. Five months later came the pivotal battle of Chancellorsville. Lane's brigade was one of the units that accompanied Jackson on a celebrated march around the flank of the Union Army. Late on that May day, Jackson slammed into the Federals, breaking their ranks and driving them back. As the first two waves of the Confederate attackers ran out of steam, Jackson called for the Light Division, which was stacked in columns on the road. Lane's brigade was the first in line. It was dark. The woods were deep. The 33rd Regiment was thrown out as skirmishers out in front. The 7th and the 37th Regiments filed off to the left side of the Orange Plank Road, while the other two regiments in the brigade, the 18th and the 28th, filed off to the left side of the road. Once Lane had his brigade formed, 
Lane rode back, seeking a peak hill and further orders. In the darkness engulfing the wilderness, Jackson recognized Lane's voice. And Lane wrote more about Chancellorsville than any other battle after the war. I believe Chancellorsville haunted Lane. For the, for the remainder of his life. And, and Lane was not someone who visited a lot of the former battlefields later in life, but he did go to Chancellorsville at least once. So we can kind of piece together what's going on that night, May 2nd, 1863, because Lane wrote about it so much. So Lane has ridden back looking for A.P. Hill, and he runs into Jackson. Jackson recognizes Lane's voice in the darkness. And Jackson, according to Lane, calls out, Lane, who are you looking for? General Hill was Lane's reply, who ordered me to form my line for a night attack, which I have now done. And I now wish to know whether I must advance or await further orders. But General, I do not know where General Hill is. To save time, Lane asked for orders, to which Jackson replied, quote, with a gesture with his right hand in the direction of the enemy, push right ahead, Lane. That was a common statement from Jackson. That's the same thing that Jackson told Branch at Cedar Mountain, as Branch is forming his brigade for the attack. Push right ahead. Jackson rode on. And Lane moved toward the right of his own line, the 7th North Carolina, to get the night attack started. Unbeknownst to Lane, Jackson and his staff, followed by A.P. Hill and his staff, rode off into the darkness as well, moving beyond Lane's line into the darkness. They passed the left flank of the 37th Regiment first. Thomas Lowry, according to a, a family story, saw Jackson red b- ride by and said to Jackson, I wouldn't go in there now. It's too dark and your men may mistake you for the enemy and shoot you. When I first got that story two plus decades ago, I thought, sure, this is just like one of those stories about all the Confederate soldiers who held Robert E. Lee's horse at Appomattox. Come to find out, Thomas Lowry is acting second sergeant of Company D of the 37th Regiment. They are the last company on the left, and the second sergeant's position is the last man online. So if there's anybody to see Jackson that night, it would have been Thomas Lowry. Jackson and his staff ride on. They pass the right flank of the 18th Regiment. And yet another story, a member of that regiment, Richard Reeves, recalled many years after the war while he was standing under a large oak tree that, quote, Jackson came riding up. He told us the enemy was very near us and we must watch and listen and at the least noise fire as it would be the foe. And then Jackson rode away. A skirmish breaks out between the 33rd Regiment and the Federals. A a Federal officer has ridden very close to the 33rd line, and he's calling out, is General Williams here, General Williams? Well, the commander of the 33rd knows we don't have a General Williams. And so he orders his men to fire in that direction. And Union infantry and artillery return fire. Lane has ridden all the way back to the 7th Regiment, 
And, and as he nears the 7th Regiment, he encounters a, a situation where a federal officer uh, from the 128th Pennsylvania have come into Confederate lines under a white flag. And the officer's story is, well, I'm just here to see who's out there in front of me. Lane considers this a breach of, of military etiquette. Um, and while Lane is trying to figure out what to do with this man, uh, Lieutenant Emac of the 7th Regiment comes up to Lane and says, look, there's something else going on out there. Let us go out and check it out. And Lane allows Lieutenant Emac and either four or five men to go off into the darkness off of his right. They come upon a large portion of the 128th Pennsylvania. Lieutenant Emac boldly calls out, General Jackson has you surrounded. Throw down your arms. And I'm paraphrasing that. And over 200 of the Federals of the 128th Pennsylvania do that, and they surrender. And they are marched back by Lieutenant Emac and his four or five men. Right about at that moment, that skirmish between the 33rd and the Federal starts to take place. And there are many balls whizzing through the woods and artillery projectiles come crashing through that. Jackson has figured out that his position, he's ridden forward to, to try and see what's going on, to, to listen. He can hear the Federals building earthworks. We don't actually know how far Jackson rides forward. There are different accounts that he's right behind the 33rd North Carolina. There's one account saying that he actually rode beyond the 33rd North Carolina. But he starts to ride back, and then this infantry and artillery duel starts to take place. 37th Regiment, 7th Regiment, fire a volley off into the darkness. In front of the 18th North Carolina came the sound of horses in the woods moving from the direction of the Federals. Colonel Thomas Perdee of the 18th Regiment ordered his men to fix bayonets, to load, to prepare for action. And someone in the 18th North Carolina yells out, Calvary, and the regiment poured a volley out into the woods. Cease firing, you are firing into your own men, came a voice through the smoke and the darkness. Who gave that order? cried out Major John Barry of the 18th Regiment. It's a lie. Pour it into him. And with that, the 18th North Carolina fire a more concentrated volley. Nevertheless, the voices crying out in the wilderness were correct. The 18th Regiment, who mistook Jackson and Hill for the Federal Cavalry, mortally wounded their beloved Stonewall Jackson. Gettysburg came next. Six weeks later, the brigade fought well on day one below Seminary Ridge. And then on July 3rd, they joined Pettigrew and Pickett's commands and charged the slopes of Seminary Ridge, Cemetery Ridge. They helped protect the line of the retreat at Falling Waters and marched with Lee's army at Bristow Station and Mine Run in the fall of 1863. Fighting with its highs and its lows came even more often in 1864. Lane's brigade was forced back in the wilderness, saved by the arrival of Longstreet's command. And then came the Battle of Spotsylvania Courthouse on May 12, 1864. That is probably the defining moment in the history of the Stallworth Band of Tar Heel soldiers. Twice in one day, 
Lane's brigade helped save the Army of Northern Virginia. As the Federals broke through the mule shoe, Lane's brigade refused their flank. This is early in the morning. Lane's brigade refused their flank and poured a devastating volley into the Federals. And then Lane personally led his brigade up over the works and charged the Federals. They helped stymie the federal attack. I think the fighting at Spotsylvania Courthouse is some of the worst of the war. You have the Confederates on one side of the earthworks, the Federals on the other side of the earthworks. It is raining. It is muddy. If you are wounded and cannot crawl out, you will probably drown in the mud. As Lane came back from his charge over the works, he finds that his position has been filled by another Confederate brigade, and he is rotated a little further down the line. Later that afternoon, Lee came, Robert E. Lee, came to James H. Lane's section of the line looking for a brigade to capture a Federal battery of artillery that was enfilading Confederate lines. Some of Lane's sharpshooters went out and reconnoitered the federal position and came back and reported, yes, we can capture that battery. It is unsupported. Lane led his men forward, as you can see at the bottom of this map, wheeled through the woods and attacked a brand, not only captured the battery of, of federal artillery, but at the same time, Burnside's men have finally gotten their attack launched, and Lane's brigade slams into the first line of Burnside's attack, particularly the 17th Michigan and the 51st Pennsylvania. Lane himself was almost captured. His brigade captured three flags during that attack, but Lane himself was almost captured. And he wrote a lot about this event as well. As Lane made his way back through the pine thicket, he was accosted by a small group of federal soldiers who demanded his surrender. Lane boldly commanded them to throw down their arms. Seeing Lane unarmed, and I don't get that. Who goes into a fight unarmed? But Lane wrote that he was unarmed. Seeing Lane unarmed, they were not inclined to obey until Lane added, very well, wait a moment till my line comes up. And with that, the Federals dropped their rifles, and Lane made his escape. Soon thereafter, Lane was walking, he writes, with cap in hand and found myself face to face with two Yankees going to the front. As one of these Federals leveled his gun, I heard someone cry out, what are you about? Then followed quickly the sharp crack of an unerring rifle, and as that Yankee fell dead, almost at my feet, I dashed by the other one. As Lane passed by his savior, whom he later learned was Peter Parker. Now, I don't know how much y'all keep up with comic books, but Peter, who is Peter Parker? Peter Parker is Spider-Man. Spider-Man just saved James H. Lane. That's not true, but that's the first thing I thought when I found that story from James H. Lane. As Lane passed by his savior, whom he later learned was Peter Parker of the 37th North Carolina, Lane turned to Parker and said, this is no place for us. The sooner we get out, the better. Lane then spied Octavius Wiggins of the 37th Regiment, backed up against a tree and, quote, daring two burly Yankees to fire on him. 
Lang scooted into a field and found himself between the lines and then ducked back into the woods and soon encountered Wiggins again. It seemed that Lang's presence in the field distracted the two Federals long enough for Wiggins to escape. As Lane and Wiggins stumbled along, they came upon the color bearer of the 51st Pennsylvania. Hello, Yank. That won't do. Bring us that flag, Wiggins called out. Since they were Confederates, the Federal soldier, not noticing that both Wiggins and Lane were unarmed, surrendered. Wiggins, Lane, and the captured Federal soldier quickly parted company. Lane worked his way back to the lines and collapsed on a pile of rails. Two members of his brigade there, as Lane wrote, faces almost black from biting so many cartridges, found Lane and wanted to carry him behind the lines, but Lane said, no, that would not do. It would never do for them to lug me out of the woods in the presence of my brigade when I was not wounded, only physically exhausted. The three later made their way back into the lines, and James H. Lane wrote that he could not keep back the tears as I listened to their prolonged cheers of delight. Lane's attack stopped Burnside's advance. And I am of the opinion that had Burnside's men continued to advance, they probably would have crushed that part of the Confederate line. As Lane's brigade made their way back, some of his men got into a scrap with General William Mahone, little Billy Mahone. Mahone's brigade, under the command of Colonel Wisner, was sent to support Lane's attack. But instead of coming forward when called for, they came to the edge of the woods, advanced to the edge of the woods, and fired at the back of Lane's men, at least twice. As Lane's men started to emerge from the woods in front of the Confederate works, General Mahone rode forward among the brigade survivors and their prisoners, demanding to know if there was an officer present. Lieutenant Colonel McGill of the 18th Regiment came forward, and Mahone demanded to know where McGill was going. After replying he was heading to the rear to reform, Mahone ordered McGill back into the fight, stating that, quote, the damn North Carolinians were deserting his brave Virginians. McGill and Mahone got into a verbal disagreement about what was happening in the woods. Not satisfied, Mahone, quote, began abusing Lane's brigade generally. As the heated exchange continued, McGill told Mahone that he could, quote, go to hell or any other place. But as for me, I would form with my command and move forward accordingly. More than 30 members of the brigade had gathered around McGill by this point. Mahone rode on, finding a group of Lane's men with captured flags and prisoners in tow. The Virginian began to claim everything, wrote William McLaurin, another member of the brigade after the war. McLaurin wrote that Mahone, quote, began to gather our flags, which was stopped by Colonel Cowan of the 33rd North Carolina. Cowan and myself were close together near two of the flags and with an easy pistol shot of Mahone. Being foiled in the flag gathering, Mahone turned toward us and those with us and began upbraiding all for retreating in cowardly disorder. And then McLaurin paints a beautiful picture. He writes, quote, Cowan's red head literally got on fire. 
he poured forth a volume of cuss words that Jube, Early, or Major Hampton might have honored as their own without injury to their reputation. Advancing toward Mahone with his hat in one hand and his pistol cocked in the other, Cowan told him how Mahone had run from instead of going with us into the charge, that his brigade also acted badly and neither had anything to do with the captured flags. Among several severe epitaphs, Cowan called Mahone a cowardly son of a and told him he would have to apologize for his language toward us or he would kill him on the spot. I advanced with Cowan with my pistol ready for business if Cowan's failed. Mahone took his cussing without a word back, made a profound apology, and rode inside the breastworks. The story doesn't end there either. Mahone rode back to someplace behind the lines, took out his pen, and wrote General Lee. General Lee, my men captured those prisoners and flags on May 12, 1864. There was a lot of paperwork exchanged regarding that, but eventually Lane's brigade was awarded the capture of three of the four flags captured that afternoon. Lane himself was wounded a few weeks later on June 2nd, and command transferred now to the now Colonel John D. Berry, and then after Berry was wounded to Brigadier General James Connor. Lane was transferred to Richmond to convalesce, but would return a few months later to resume command of his brigade. There are a host of other conflicts that we could discuss, events that demonstrate the fighting abilities of this group of Tar Heels. If you notice on the front cover of the book, it's one of the very distinctive flags that Lane's brigade carried December 1862 through the Battle of Chancellorsville in May of 1863. And there are battle honors painted on that flag as was often common through on Confederate flags during the war. There are a host of other battles that we could paint on those flags. We could put Cold Harbor and Gravel Hill and Fussell's Mill and Ream Station and Jones Farm and Pegram's Farm. On April 2nd, 1865, it was through the depleted and thinned ranks of Lane's Brigade that the Federals came pouring through below Petersburg. A single cannon shot reverberated throughout the morning darkness on Sunday. Federal soldiers were up and moving toward the Confederate lines. Confederate pickets fired a few shots to alert those in the main works and then scampered back. Federal pioneers hacked away at the abattis as Confederate artillery belched into the darkness. Yet there were too few Confederate defenders in the entrenchments. One member of the brigade wrote that they were spaced about 10 paces apart. Federals swarmed across the works. Several met the color bearer of the 37th Regiment. The nameless Tar Hill was knocked down and his banner seized, but not before he killed two Federals and wounded a third. As the Federals overran the works, one pointed his rifle at the head of Octavius Wiggins, and he pulled the trigger. The ball missed Wiggins, but Wiggins was blinded by the blast and captured. His story is really 
kind of unique. Uh, he was put on a, a transport and taken up north and transferred to a train. And when he got on the train, he jumped off it at some point and began to work his way back through the lines and eventually into Richmond, where he learned that Robert Easley Army had surrendered. He then started heading back home toward Roanoke Rapids, North Carolina. I'm going to give you a little bit that's not in the book. It's amazing how stories sometimes pop up. It seems that as Wiggins was really near to his house, he was going across this railroad bridge when he was accosted by two federal soldiers, and one of them pointed his rifle at Wiggins' head and pulled the trigger. But as he pulled the trigger, his the other federal soldier knocked the rifle away, but Wiggins once again was blinded by the blast. He survived that and lived for several decades after the war. The Federals also captured the flag of the 18th North Carolina on that April 2nd, 1865 morning. Some of Lane's men filed into Battery Gregg, while the majority were sent to a position near Battery 45. Lane himself was in the fort for a time, but gained permission to make his way back to the other line. The battle inside the battery was intense, and for a time, a handful of Confederate soldiers, the defenders in that fort, held off several federal attacks. At least one Confederate soldier escaped. Corporal James Atkinson apparently had served as color bearer of the 33rd Regiment for the last year of the war. He had his regiment's banner with him in Battery Gregg. During the struggle, as the post-war story goes, Adkins made his escape. At some point between the battery and the inter-Confederate lines, Adkinson unfurled his flag, and taking a position not a great way off, he waved the tattered colors in their very teeth. Federal soldiers fired several volleys at Adkinson, but he was never hit and made his way back to the Confederate lines. Lane led just a fraction of men who had served with the brigade into the streets at Appomattox. Lane's brigade surrendered 579 men, plus Lane and four of his staff officers. The 7th Regiment was not with Lane's brigade at this time. They had been detailed back to North Carolina a couple of months earlier to look for deserters. At Lexington, North Carolina, the 7th Regiment surrendered 13 commissioned officers and 139 enlisted men. Of the 8,975 men who served those four years in the Branch Lane Brigade, at least 3,151 died while in service. That's somewhere around 35%. That's a conservative number. And of that, 3,151 men, 1,197 were killed or mortally wounded on a battlefield. I could spend literally the rest of the evening talking about camp life, of the revivals that swept through the army, of the military discipline, of brigade hospital care, of foodstuff sent from home, of desertion. But I'll end where we started. Who has written up the war history of the glorious dead of Lane's Brigade? Asked Riddick Gatling Jr. in 1887. 
Who has ever written a line to tell of the sacrifices, the suffering, and the ending of these more than immortal men? Who has ever told of the heroic death of General Branch at Sharpsburg? Where is to be found a history of his brigade? Afterwards, Lane's always glorious, always doing its duty. Why has the history of that brigade not been written? Well, Captain Gatling, I am so sorry it took 150 years for your story to be told. Thank you all very much. And do you have any questions? Well, uh, I hope we have some. Uh, I see one there, but that may be from earlier. I usually don't like to monopolize the conversation. I'll wait for other questions. But if there aren't any right now, I will uh, I will ask a couple. Uh, and I will step aside uh, as soon as somebody else asks one. I have a couple. Well, I have lots. But, but I'll start with this. Uh, regarding Mahone, was that the only run-in that uh, Lane and his people had with Mahone? Or were there others? That's one. And two... Uh, you glossed over Gettysburg, which is fine. I, as far as I'm concerned, you could have given us more on that. But I'm going to ask for more on that because I think Lane's brigade's uh, experience at Gettysburg was a little unusual compared to, let's say, the Virginia brigades. Uh, could you explain a little bit more about their experience at Gettysburg? But first, Mahone, did he have any other run-ins with Mahone before and after the war? Um, before the war, no. Um, no. In fact, I, I can't really ever say that uh, Lane and Mahone had a real confrontation before that day on May 12th of 1864. Um, I mean, they were in different divisions, and I, I'm sure they, they randed each other and knew each other, but not before that point has anything ever really emerged that I've seen. Um, from that point on, there is a lot of conflict between Lane and Mahone for the rest of their lives. Um, there's there's conflict during um, some of the, the other battles. Um, they're supposed to be working together. And, um, you know, Mahone is a division commander. Lane remains a brigade commander. Uh, Wilcox assumes command of the light division after the battle of um, Gettysburg. And um, at one point, Wilcox is supposed to go support Mahone and Mahone's a little late in getting there or Wilcox is a little late in getting there. Uh, they they continue to feud after the war. Um, Lane loses his job teaching. It's what now Virginia Tech basically because of Mahone. Um, just there, there's one point where Mahone is, is running for office and, and Lane calls him the devil. Uh, you know, they do not like each other at all. And of course, Mahone stays in Virginia and Lane eventually um, moves to Auburn, Alabama and teaches at, at what's now Auburn University. It was Alabama Polytechnical then, um, but but they don't have any use whatsoever for each other. Okay, uh, I see. So, okay, very good. I see there are a couple other questions. One from Bruce. Can you see the, those questions on your... Uh... Well, was uh, I'll just I'll ask it for you if you don't see them. One was was uh, was uh, 
Lane ever considered for divisional command? That's that's a great question. Um, and after the death of Pender at Gettysburg, um, Lee kind of passed him over. And a lot of folks will say that that's because of Lane's men being responsible for the mortal wounding and death of Jackson at Chancellorsville. Um, but I, I kind of disagree with that. And there are numerous reasons why I do disagree with that. You know, Wilcox who got the job as commander of the light division was a West pointer. He was the senior brigade commander in the army of Northern Virginia at that time. Um, and so, um, and Wilcox had a brother who was in the, the Confederate Senate. So, you know, there are a lot of reasons why Wilcox eventually got that job. After that point in time, you know, Wilcox survives. Um, Wilcox, you know, survives for the rest of the war. There are points in time where Lane has commanded the division when Wilcox is not there. Um, but there's really no serious efforts to promote Lane after that point in time. Um, very well. Uh, now I'll ask again, can you see those, Michael? Can you see the questions? I can see them now. Now that I clicked okay. on that little button, I can okay. see them. Brian, uh, Brian had a question about the rivalry between uh, Virginia and North Carolina. Yes. Um, so, and I actually wrote a book about this too. Um, I wrote a little book several years ago called North Carolina Remembers Gettysburg, and it is a collection of um, first-person accounts written by North Carolina soldiers. And the the whole July 3rd, 1863 thing was a huge event. Um, Richmond newspapers start right after the battle blaming North Carolina for the failure on July 3rd, 1863. And that really rises. Um, it kind of dies down a little right after the war because veterans are not writing as much. But when um, Walter Taylor comes out with his book, and I don't remember the date, 1877, I think it was, um, he, he really lays hard into the Tar Heel soldiers. Uh, for their performance on July 3rd at Gettysburg. And at that point in time, um, the North Carolina newspaper in Raleigh, The Observer, sends a questionnaire to every officer that they can find from North Carolina and uh, asks them, what did you see on July 3rd, 1863? And uh, they really, North Carolina's remaining Confederate officers really stepped up and produced a remarkable collection of letters that were published in the newspaper. Um, but yes, from just just a few days after the, the troops returned to Virginia, all the way 1870s, 1880s, um, Virginians are blaming North Carolinians for the failure at Gettysburg on day three. Uh, and it's really the idea that it was the idea that the North Carolinians and the other two brigades were there to support Pickett's division, whereas the other Pettigrew's brigade and, and those two brigades under Trimble had their own place they were assigned to attack. So, but yeah, I mean, they, they went after each other pretty hard in, in the, especially the post-war years, 1870s, 1880s. Um, 
Very well. Then your next question was from uh, John Hussey about the seventh uh, about the seventh North Carolina. Um, was it a well? There were several occasions where North Carolina regiments were sent back to North Carolina to look for deserters. And the mountains where I live in Western North Carolina were, were a haven to deserters from men from both armies or outliers altogether, men who didn't want to serve in either army. Um, there were, we were talking earlier about the numbers, 125,000 North Carolina soldiers, um, Confederate soldiers during the war, somewhere around 25,000 of that 125,000 supposedly deserted or were AWOL. Um, so at times there are, are um, Confederate soldiers that belong to Hoax Brigade um, that are here looking for deserters. Um, the 7th Regiment is ordered, I think it's February of 1865, are ordered back to North Carolina to try and find deserters. Uh, so in the last half of the war, yes, it is, I won't say a common occurrence, but it does happen. Yeah, that, uh, just following up on that, that's, uh, one could read uh, Charles Fraser, Cold Mountain. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, that's, uh, that's what that's about. Uh, very well, I guess that takes me, I don't see any other questions, so that, I guess, takes me back to my uh, second question about uh, uh, asking a little bit more about the details of the experience of Lane's Brigade at Gettysburg, because it's my understanding uh, that the experience of those, and, and Pettigrew's uh, brigade as well, the experience of those brigades on the left side of the attack uh, was a lot different from the Virginia brigades in the center because of uh, what was going on on their left? Could you explain that a little bit more? Well, Pettigrew's division and and his original brigade, but his he takes command of of the division after um, Henry Heath is wounded. Um, and we could we could talk a long time. You know, should that division, considering the mauling parts of that division had taken on July first, have even been in that attack? But they were. Um, and there are two brigades from Pender's division. Pender has been wounded by this point in time. He's wounded on July 2nd uh, under the command of, of Isaac Trimble that are stacked behind Pettigrew's men. And Pickett's division is on the Confederate right during the attack. And so the attack commences and the men are moving across that field and Pickett's men are fresh, whereas, as I just discussed, Pettigrew's men are not. And as they attack, the Confederate left is open, and the Federals actually flank Pettigrew's men as they are coming up. And Brockenbro's division falls back. There's a group of Virginians for you on the left that fall back first and expose the rest of Pettigrew's division uh, to a flank attack. And Pettigrew's men crumble. Uh, even more, there's actually a story from a member of Lane's brigade who says as um, some of the – and Pettigrew's actual brigade, 26 North Carolina, is, is in front of Lane's brigade, and as – members of the, the 11th and the 26th North Carolina go down into one of those swells. 
and, and the property, the, the the land is not quite laid today as it did in 1863. Um, but they actually refused to come out. And uh, a lot of the soldiers just stayed right there in that spot. But remnants of, of Pettigrew's command surge forward. They get to the fence and the fence kind of stops them. Uh, the two regiments from uh, the light division come up and once again hit that fence. But there are pockets of those men who do surge forward. There are members of the 37th Regiment who are actually captured right in front of the federal works. Uh, and this is behind the, um, the angle there at Gettysburg. Uh, if, if you have been to Gettysburg or you look at maps, you'll see how uh, the fence uh, cuts back. Uh, and it's a deeper position that they are attacking as different from Pettigrew's division or um, from Pickett's division. Uh, so there are groups of Lane's brigade that actually make it all the way to the fence. But during the attack, Lane is getting flanked on the left. Eighth Ohio is one of those regiments there. And Lane orders his men to um, march at the left oblique. It's not a turn, but it, it's not a full turn like a wheel, but it's just a little to the left. At the same time, Trimble orders the brigade forward. And that split occurs right where the 37th North Carolina is. And so half of the 37th North Carolina and another regiment of the brigade move forward. And the other half of the 37th regiment and the rest of the brigade move to the left. And so Lane's brigade is split in the middle during that attack. Um, Lane says that his brigade is the last organized group of men on the field, and they fall back and reform um, that afternoon. Um, Trimble, as you know, we've probably read, is wounded during the attack, and command falls back on to Lane. He, he re reassumes command. That's a short version of that story. And the reason why I don't usually include that is so many people know so much about Gettysburg. Um, you know, I, there are entire book groups just about Gettysburg, and people have hundreds of books on Gettysburg. And um, <laughs> I, I want to talk about Spotsylvania Courthouse. <laughs> well, no, I, I can understand that. But, I, I mean, uh, to me, that that part – of uh, Pickett's Charge. I'm usually not that interested in Pickett's Charge, actually, but that part of it is interesting uh, because it's a little complicated. And also, just a quick follow-up before the next question from Brian. Uh, where do you stand, if you do in fact stand at all, on the question of what was Lee's actual ob objective? Was it not necessarily the so-called Cops of Trees, but was he really angling more towards the left oblique, in other words, Cemetery Hill? I think it's more the hill. I think the angle is something that we have adopted. Because that's where they wound up. The that's, where they wound, that's true. <laughs> that's where the I, I, I don't, don't think that he put, looked at that point and said, okay, y'all converge right there on that yeah. single point. I, I, um, I, I have a tendency to agree with that. That's my that would have created confusion within the ranks um, yeah. to try and angle everybody in at that one point it, with such a long spread outline. Yeah. Anyway, there's a there's a question then from uh, from Brian about uh, battlefields in North Carolina. What battlefield in North Carolina that you have visited is the best preserved Bentonville, Fort Fisher, and the study of North Carolina Civil War history? Um, Bentonville is um, thanks to the work of the American Battlefield Trust and um, 
local groups and everything is wonderfully preserved. Um, Fort Fisher is cool, but only about a quarter of it is still there. Uh, the rest of it has washed into the ocean. If you want to see something more complete, go across the Cape Fear River to Fort Anderson, Brunswick Town. Um, it's a little upriver from Fort Fisher, but it is almost entirely all there. And it is just as impressive um, earthworks as um, Fort Fisher. I mean, it's just beautifully preserved. Um, but but Bentonville is, is much more, I mean, like I said, most, most of Fort Fisher is gone. Interesting. Yeah, our group uh, did a tour of uh, North Carolina sites some years ago. Gosh, it's probably over 20 years ago. Uh, others could correct me on this. I, I was not on that tour. Uh, but what, uh, I, I, and follow up to Brian's question, uh, what would you say uh, or or uh, do you have anything to say about preservation efforts, let's say, over the last 20 to 25 years on North Carolina Civil War sites so that maybe we could start thinking about take, taking another tour there because we haven't been there in a long time? Well, the, the American Battlefield Trust has done a remarkable job with Bentonville. They've done a remarkable job, and I'm a member, and I've a, I was a member when it was the, um, what was it, the American Association for the Preservation of Civil War Sites. Yeah, same here. Yeah. So um, they have done a remarkable job all over the place, um, a lot of property, and I don't remember how many thousands, I think it's like thirteen or 1,400 acres that they've preserved just at Bentonville. I could be wrong about that number, um, but but just a remarkable job. Um that's a great battlefield to visit. Um, down the road from there is the Battle of Averysboro. Averysboro um, is is was a precursor to to Bentonville. Um, that's a great spot to visit. They have a great little museum there. In fact, I was mentioning uh, Colonel Thomas Purdue 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 earlier of the 18th North Carolina. He is killed the next day at Chancellorsville. Um, he's killed on May 3rd and they actually have his uniform there at that museum at Averysboro. Uh, so, um, Fort Fisher's a great site. Fort Anderson's a great site. Uh, if you ever get a chance, Fort Caswell, which is owned by the North Carolina Baptist Association, Roundtable meets there. They're, gosh, where, I can't remember the name, Brunswick where, Civil War Roundtable. Where is that? Uh, in um, reference to... Oak Island, um, it is, if you're at Fort Fisher, it is on the other side of the Cape Fear River and south. It is at the very entrance of the Cape Fear River in the Atlantic okay. Ocean. Or, okay, yeah. so near near Wilmington, generally. Yes, just south of Wilmington. Because um, any tour any tour of North Carolina is going to involve getting in the bus and traveling around. Yes, um, Fort yeah. Macon is a great site. Uh, it's a state park. Um Battle was fought there early in 1862, um, but it's 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 a well preserved um, masonry fort, third system system masonry fort. Um, okay, so a lot of great sites. Fort Branch is up the road from Fort Macon. Um, you come here in the western part of the state. I can tour you. We can go on a Stoneman's Raid tour. How's that? That sounds pretty interesting. <laughs> All of Stoneman's Raid around for for several days. Well, that that's that sounds pretty interesting. I have I have the book on Stoneman's, and I uh, there was a blue and gray, I believe, a blue and gray issue on on that as well. So, 
we could we could uh, we could bone up on it and uh, come down and <laughs> have a visit with you. But anyway, let's see. I don't see any more questions. Here. Well, there was a question uh, earlier that um, Gary sent, and he says, um, oh, okay. uh, was there a Brigade Association of Veterans post-war? And oh, okay. um, no, I have never – I have, of course, there are different types of, of Confederate groups, associations after the war, the United Confederate Veterans being the, the largest of them, but I never found one for the brigade itself. Um, I believe some brigades did form um, – brigade level um veteran associations but i never found one for branches branch line brigade and it could be possible as we discussed earlier you know this brigade was made up of men from across the entire state from you know here in the mountains where i live all the way to wilmington uh so that could be one of the reasons why there was never a brigade association that, that prompts me to ask then, Gary's question prompts me to ask the question about since your ancestors have uh, lived in the state for so long, uh, are you able to trace uh, your uh, genealogy to uh, members of your family who uh, were members of any of this uh, of this brigade or any other regiment, North Carolina Not regiment? direct ancestors, no. Um, I have, since my family was here, uh, since the 1750s, 1760s, um, I am distant cousins to a whole lot of those soldiers from Wilkes County uh, in, in Company F of the 37th and in one of the companies of the 33rd. But all of my direct ancestors were other places by that time period. Oh, OK. So they what did, did they migrate over the mountains to Tennessee and other uh, places? Tennessee, Kentucky. Um, it's my mom's people that are from North Carolina. My dad's people are all from Alabama. So, okay. um, is that what, but no, I'm, I'm not directly related to any of these folks. Oh, okay. Interesting. Very, very good. Uh, well, uh, we, we could talk, uh, all night because this is a very interesting subject. I, 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 uh, uh, as I, we were discussing earlier, this is uh, regimental and brigade studies are generally not something that I gravitate towards, but uh, uh, this book is is very absorbing. Uh, I've only touched the surface of it, reading uh, two or three or four chapters, uh, and I find it, you know, your your writing style is excellent. The way you integrate the the big picture with the small picture, uh, mm -hmm. not everybody is that good at that. Uh, so I commend you. And I do want to ask you for the name of that book that you mentioned. Is it called Feeding the Confederacy? It's called, well, no, it's called, it's tentatively called Feeding the Army of Northern Virginia. Oh, oh, oh this is a work in progress? Well, it's, I'm done and um, Savas Beatty is going to be publishing it, but as far, I don't have a date right now. Um, okay. Probably next spring sometime. Uh, but it looks okay. at food stuff in, you know, in Virginia, particularly with that army. Okay. Um, it looks at food on campaign. It looks at food in camp and issued by the army. Okay. Um, Very interesting because we had Greg Biggs talk to us uh, a couple months ago on uh, logistics uh, in the Atlanta campaign, which of course is a huge part of it. Very interesting subject for me. I've, I've always wanted to hear uh, more on that topic. And of course, uh, Earl Hess has written a couple books on that subject. And there's others from uh, 
Johns John Hopkins uh, University on that. And, and here and there, more uh, books are coming out on Civil War logistics. And this would be this was, this is something I'd be very interested in because I am extremely interested in logistics as well as, as, well as Civil War medicine. Uh, uh, we love battles and leaders. Don't get me wrong. You know, right? Uh, we love it. Uh, but uh, this is a topic I'm most interested in. So uh, maybe a year from now we might see this on on uh, Sava Speedy shelves. I sure hope so. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. That that now that's something that is definitely up my alley because I. I uh, I think this is uh, you know this is something uh, 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 which I'm most interested in. But uh, General Lee's Immortals is something I recommend to all of our all of our group. You will uh, you will be very uh, it's, it's it's an entertaining read, but it's also uh, it 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 gets into the trenches, if I might uh, use that uh, metaphor. Uh, but also you know this brigade was in the trenches a lot in 1864. Uh, this group of uh, men did a lot of important fighting. And as I said earlier, the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat, uh, this brigade really did see its, uh, you know, it, it, you know, as I, I could never repeat uh, General Sherman's warning to people about, uh, you know, uh, about the war being all hell. These, these people uh, uh, could tell all the stories about what military life was about. Uh, they had their share of great uh, moments, but they also had their share of uh, agonizing defeats as well. Uh, uh, their their story, you know, could be told along with the 45th Division in the Second World War or the 1st Division, you know, a lot of storied units, the 1st Marines on Guadalcanal. Uh, the Branch uh, Lane Brigade is... Uh, from what I can read in this book, and I'm, I'm very impressed by your, your book, uh, they're right up there with them. So I thank you so much, we all do, uh, for your talk and, and for your book. I, I'm, uh, uh, I'm, I'm waiting for your next one. Me, me too. <laughs> okay, so if there's no more questions, and I, again, I'll solicit the group for that. Uh, I have one last uh, uh, note. Uh, and that is because I always forget uh, when I sign off, I always forget to thank Mark Kunis, who uh, is our host. I now finally have my own computer that I've worked out the bugs on. I could set up, I can set up the meetings from now on, but I've, I've learned to rely on on Mark. He's so good about this. Uh, he sets these things all up and uh, and I'm going to keep I'm going to keep letting them do it. <laughs> I'm going to keep letting them do it because uh, it takes the heat off me. I'm. Not all that good with technology. So thanks once again, uh, Michael. Uh, you're great. Uh, and I, uh, as I said earlier, uh, you took part of my introduction away when you shaved your long beard. Uh, but um, uh, that's okay. You look great. And uh, you, you gave a great talk. We, we look forward to having you back again sometime. Uh, when uh, the time comes, and it will in the not too distant future, that we need to learn more about North Carolina's role in the Civil War, uh, you will be on the list. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you very, very much. So uh, good night to all, and we'll see you next month, June 11th, uh, 2021. Uh, our good friend, Will Green, Wilson Green, 
will be talking to us on the first offensive uh, uh, in the uh, siege, a so-called siege of Petersburg. Uh, will Green is an old friend of ours, a uh, good Chicagoan, former Chicagoan, and a great White Sox fan, I should add, uh, so that uh, we, we can... So good evening and good night.